0: Thank you for joining the Home Church Podcast. For more information, visit us at myhomechurch.org. Yes, you know, I was just waiting for that. Thank you. It's a good thing to say. We're excited you're back, too. Um, Yeah. All right. Yeah, thank you. Um, but the last three weeks have been amazing, but I'm really excited to, uh, to, to really be back up here. I just I love to share the word. I love to be with you guys. And uh, prior to these last three weeks, we were diving into the names of God, right? Everyone remember that? I know it feels like a lifetime ago, names of God. And, uh, and we're going to continue on that. I, I just really feel that God has just called us to stop here. And I don't, I don't think we'll probably stay that much longer, but we've definitely stayed a lot longer than I anticipated. But I've, there's so many reasons to that, Right. The knowledge of God, the knowledge of God, I feel, is often the answer to to most of our, probably all of our life issues. We could really simplify to that. A.W. Tozer said it best. He said, with all the issues that we can see in the church, here's the solution. He says, acquaint thyself with God. (laughs) So what happens is with, with the names of God, names biblically are different than names today because biblical names are actually not just ways to identify someone, but they're expressions of one's nature. their reality of who they are. Uh, names actually tell you one's purpose, talents, giftings. And so the same holds true when we talk about God's names. When God reveals a name to us, it's not just a way to identify him. He's actually giving us or, or an invitation to really grow in who he is and what he does. And the more that happens, the more that we change. Like we were made to know God. That is the essence of eternal life, that we may know God. So as we're studying these names, It's not just so that we can have a list of names of God. It's so that we would grow in the knowledge of the Lord. And as we grow in the knowledge of God, it actually expands our ability to worship. (laughs) Because we worship in spirit and in truth. And I have found that in my life that oftentimes my worship is capped just by a a, a limited knowledge of what he does and who he is. So the more we actually study the names, it opens our heart to be able to worship God on an even deeper level. We can actually offer up thanksgiving in even deeper places in our heart because we're more aware of what he does. We can praise him more because we're more aware of who he is. All right. So we're going to stay in the names of God. Uh, specifically, we've been looking at Jesus the last few weeks. And uh, we're going to stay right there. And I'm just going to summarize it with this. And then I'm, I'm really excited. We're going to end with communion today. And it's going to be beautiful. It's going to be powerful. We're going to see that his wounds, they still speak. There's still power in those wounds, in that blood, in his broken body. Uh, but we, we, we've covered a number of names, but, but the supreme title of Jesus is Christ, is Messiah, right? Because the whole book of the Bible is really, it's really a story of redemption. That's the major theme. God repossessing and repurchasing his people. And he does that by paying the debt for our sin, which we find in the Messiah. So the whole idea is that if the story of the Bible is really a story of redemption, there is one key figure who is the redeemer. That is the Christ, that is the Messiah. Everything in the Old Testament points towards him. Everything in the New Testament either highlights his life or looks back to when he came. So, so the whole Bible, this is the way, just to kind of give an imagery of what we've been doing. The whole Bible essentially creates this tapestry that is Christ, Right. But what we've been doing is we've been plucking individual strands out of that and highlighting those. So the Christ is the Son of God. The Christ is the Son of Man. The Christ is Jesus, right? And today we're taking another strand out to understand who our Messiah is. And that is that he is the servant of the Lord. Or more specifically, that he came to be the suffering servant for us. And within this, there is a great deal of tension because... At the heart of Jesus being our Messiah, it means that he came as the conquering king to usher in God's kingdom. Yet at the same time, the way that he will usher in God's kingdom is by being the suffering servant of the Lord for us. And what we begin to find is it's actually in the laying down of his life that he overcomes. And what we begin to find that is the same truth truth for us, that we actually overcome by the yielding of our lives to the Father's will. And so this, this tension, honestly, if, you, if you've never heard of it, this tension goes back to even the, the disciples. I want to share something before we get into our main scripture, which is Matthew 16, if you would turn there. And then we're going to jump, jump right into this. Matthew 16. All right, so we're looking at Jesus. He's the Messiah, but now what we're looking at today is he is the... The servant of the Lord, but more specifically, he would come as the suffering servant. And even for us today, now we can see in hindsight, but, but, but for many, and especially even the disciples, that idea of their conquering messianic king coming and being despised, rejected, humiliated, and ultimately crucified, that was a really challenging concept to reconcile as to that is the way of which he would overcome. Jesus is known as the man of sorrows, as we're going to see. So I just want to share something that will kind of launch us into our main text. Matthew chapter 16, I'm not going to read uh, this first section. But if you look at chapter 13, it was a a few weeks ago when we spoke about Jesus as the Messiah, as the Christ, that I shared this. Matthew 16 verse 13 brings us into a portion of text that is known, it's been memorialized throughout church history. It's known as the great confession of faith. It's where Peter will ultimately confess that that Jesus is Christ. Do you remember that? uh, Jesus asks, who do people say that I am to the disciples? They give out all these names of prophets and so on. And then he says, but who do you say that I am? And Peter says, thou art the Christ. Thou art the Messiah. You are the long-awaited messianic king that we have been waiting for to usher in God's kingdom. Like to some degree, Peter got this. And Jesus responds by blessing him. He said, blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, which means son of Jonah. He gives him a beatitude. And then he says, your name shall be Peter which means rock, and he says, on this rock I will build my church. So it's a pretty incredible uh, scene that takes place. And the blessing that flows from Peter understanding that Jesus is the Messiah. But then what if I told you just literally it appears to be minutes later, (laughs) in the same text, the one who was called rock, the one who was called blessed, the one who confessed Christ would now be rebuked for partnering with demonic thoughts. And he would actually, Jesus would say, get behind me Satan. He'd say, what in the world happened? Well, that's where we pick it up in verse 21. I, just, I want you to see this. Matthew 16. It says, from that time. I mean, this flows right after Peter confesses it, that he's the Christ. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things. From the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. Verse 22, and I love this, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. Now, I believe Peter is honestly operating in a really genuine place because he loves Jesus. But if you can picture this scene, Jesus says, this is what will happen to your victorious king. He's going to be despised, rejected, suffer many things and eventually die. And Peter says, Jesus, come away with me for a second. And he says, far be it from you, Lord. I love that he throws the Lord in there. But he says, no, 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 Jesus, there is another path of redemption. That is not the way for you. Peter wants to distance Jesus from the idea of suffering and death. He wants a Savior that has been unsullied by suffering. But what he does not understand is that it is through the laying down of Jesus' life and stepping into the fullness of the pangs of death that we will be liberated. That's how we get set free. (laughs) Jesus, this is how I will set my people free. I will take on all that was resting on them. It'll be put on my back so that my righteousness could be put on them. In in the book of Revelation, John in chapter five is taken up into the throne room. One of my, I love the throne room activity. And, And John is weeping because he finds no one worthy to carry out God's plan of redemption, which is found in this scroll. And as he's weeping, broken over this, an elder who's been in this throne room, worshiping God, comes up to John and says, weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered. This is Jesus. I mean, it is a picture of a victorious, conquering king. But when John goes and looks and beholds this lion of the tribe of Judah, do you know what he sees? He does not see that. It says he sees a lamb that was slain. That is how Jesus overcomes. That is how he conquered. By the laying down of his life. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter for us. Listen, guys, today it gets intense, but I believe that there's going to be a joy that is released when we gaze freshly upon the wounds of Jesus. When we look upon what he has purchased, I believe Holy Spirit's going to do many things in this, but we're going to look upon the lamb that was slain for us. And when we do that, I believe awe and wonder will hit our hearts. I believe worship will hit our hearts. The goal today is not for us to read Isaiah 53 where we're going and have self-pity and have pity for Jesus. That's not what Jesus wants. He's not looking for a pity party. What he wants is when we gaze upon what he's done that we'd fall to our knees and say you are worthy of it all. That when we would discover his passion for us, this is actually how we have passion for God. We love because he first loved us. The more you see his passion for you, the more it creates passion back to him. So I believe love and awe and wonder will hit hearts. I believe confidence is going to hit hearts this morning. Because when you see the fullness of what he's done, when you see that it is complete and total, you will never again question who you are as you stand in that finished work. The joy of the Lord will be yours because you will understand his blood, his body broken is enough. And I'm honestly, again, Holy Spirit will do many personal things, but I also believe that many will be encouraged too with the things that you've walked through in your life. Because here's the reality is that we do live in a broken world. Paul actually says how he participates in the sufferings of Christ. There are some things Jesus purchased that we don't have to walk through, but there are other things that we actually participate. When we follow the Lord, like rejection, humiliation, these things take place. We forsake the ways of the world. We're not, we're not exempt from even feeling the effects of living in a broken world. But as we see how Jesus processed pain, seeing, he, there was, Jesus was not sad when he went through this. He was smeared with the oil of gladness. So even though he was a man of sorrows, he had joy in his heart as he walked through this. Because he understood what it was purchasing. And therefore, we too can walk through even the most painful of things with the joy of the Lord upon us. Because one day, even if we don't see it in this side of eternity, one day we will have a vantage point from heaven. And we will say like Jesus, it was worth it all. Everything that ever walked through God, God used it. For I am convinced that the afflictions in my life are light and momentary compared to the eternal weight of glory that is to come. So that and much more, I believe, Holy Spirit will do this morning. So I want you guys to turn with me to... Uh, Isaiah chapter 53. You guys are quiet this morning. You guys, you guys with me here? <laughs> Love you too. Isaiah chapter 53. Nowhere in all, so, so we're looking at Jesus as the servant of the Lord, the suffering servant. Nowhere in all of the Old Testament, I, I believe, does the gospel shine more brightly than Isaiah chapter 53. This, what we're about to read was written 700 years prior to Jesus' birth. Just think about that. How perfect the word is. 700 years prior, Isaiah was, was hit and stunned with a vision of the passion of this messianic king when he would come and what he would do. But in order for us to really understand the weight of this and the beauty of this and what's been purchased, I, you just you have to stay with me for a moment to understand what it means that Jesus is the servant of the Lord and understand the context of Isaiah, okay? And then we're going to hit this. I'm going to summarize the book of Isaiah really quick so we get this. Isaiah is 66 chapters and chapters 1 through 39 could basically be generalized in this way. It's about Israel's rebellion and ultimately because of that, the judgment that will come upon them is they will experience captivity. The northern kingdom will be taken by the Assyrians, and then about 150 years later, the southern kingdom will be taken by the Babylonians, which becomes the emphasis of this. But through all of that heartache, Isaiah begins to see a glimmer of hope of God never giving up on his people, even though they've turned their backs on him. And that brings the close of chapter 39. Here's what happens. When you get into chapter 40, there's a really significant shift, and we can't get into how and probably how this is written, But chapter 40 is actually written with the exile and captivity over. So chapters 1 through 39 is all about looking at them going into captivity. Chapter 40 is now it's been over, right? It passed by. And because of that, a new era has begun. And there's this hope. In fact, Isaiah chapter 40 opens up with an announcement of hope. And here is the hope. The hope was that Israel in light of God's mercy and justice and faithfulness and goodness, to see them through that captivity, that they would respond to God with all their hearts, and that as the prophet said, they would walk in a title known as the servant of the Lord. And what that role was is not just to do a bunch of nice things for people. What it meant was they were meant to be God's instrument that God would work through, that through the nation of Israel, the nations would be blessed. They would be a light to the world. They would be a witness to the nations. But instead of Israel stepping into being the servant of the Lord, what we actually find is they return back to that old heart posture of complaining, grumbling. They have a lot of doubt because of why they even went through the captivity. And so at the end of the day, they actually look more like the nations before God rather than looking like God before the nations. And that's how the next eight chapters, chapter 40 to 48, closes out. And you would say, that's it. God must be done. (laughs) And then comes chapter 49 where the mercy of God comes screaming through the text again. And he says, even though Israel has failed to be my servant, here's what will happen. I will raise one up from within you. And he will be the new Israel. He will be the true Israel. He will be the true servant of the Lord. He will do what you could never do. And in his fulfillment of being my servant of the Lord, he will not only restore Israel, but he will open up the gospel to the nations. He will be a light unto the world. He will be my king and with him he will declare the good news that the kingdom of God is here. So check this out. This is beautiful. Chapters 54, 55, 56 are all the fruit of this king coming. It's all the aftermath, the blessing that flows because this servant of the Lord has come and has truly fulfilled what it means to be God's servant. So chapter 54 speaks of new covenant. It says now new covenants here. A covenant we've never seen. The faithless of God. He said, I will be like a husband to you. Chapter 55 says not only is there a new covenant, but there's new creation. Everything is being made new. Yep. Chapter 56 says not only there's, is there a new covenant, new creation. He says, but the doors have been opened to the foreigners. Those who are outcasts. Those who were looked, you know, looked over. He says, everyone will be able to come into the presence of God because of this servant. It's amazing all that flows. But here's the question. How do those blessings get unlocked? How does the new covenant get unlocked? How does the new creation get unlocked? How is the door sprung wide open for all the nations, for the outcasts to come in before God and that they could say, He is my God? It actually says they will minister to me as well forever. The key is Isaiah 53. Isaiah 53 is the way in which all of those blessings are unlocked because of what this this servant of the Lord would do. God says He will be holy. He will be perfect, he will be righteous, he will be without, blo- uh, without, without blemish, no spot. It says, but what he will do is he will bear in his own body the reproach and shame of Israel and all of humanity. And this servant of the Lord will become known as the suffering servant. And in him the fullness of man's wickedness will be placed on him, that it will be put to death in his body, that the doors will be opened for restoration. So I want you to... Again, if you're not there, you're going to want to see this. We're going to read through Isaiah 53, and I'm just going to provide some, some commentary on it. And then uh, I'll, if we have time, I'll share kind of the fruit of it afterwards we see in the book of Acts. So is everyone there, Isaiah chapter 53? This is the key that leads to new covenant, new creation. This is the key that leads to the doors being opened to all of humanity come before the Lord. So I want you to really quick look at actually chapter 52 verse 13, the chapter before. Because technically this is where the suffering servant motif begins. And it says this, it says, behold, my servant, this is chapter 52 verse 13, behold, my servant, you see that, my servant, that's the servant of the Lord, the suffering servant, shall act wisely or shall prosper. What does that mean? It means it sets the stage to say that my servant, this is God speaking, the Father, when he comes, he will be successful in what he comes to do. His suffering will produce all of the good plans that I had in my heart. And look what it says next. It says, and he shall be high and lifted up. What were we singing today? High and lifted up. Jesus is about to be high and lifted up in this place as we look upon him as the suffering servant. And he shall be exalted. All right, so here's here we go. We're going to skip down to chapter 53, verse 1. This key text. It says, Isaiah begins by saying this. Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? It's really interesting. Isaiah starts off with a very strange question. His question actually presupposes the difficulty that humanity will have in believing the message that we're about to go through. He understands that many could not reconcile the idea. In fact, if he took a poll and asked his people, how many of you would believe that your conquering king would come as a lamb that would be slain? No one would say yes. But in the end, we will find out that this king will prosper in his rewards of this suffering. Beloved, I believe it's the same even today. Like the, 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 the way of salvation... Is, is so counter to what man would think. I, w- I should just try harder, do better, accomplish more. But what we find out is, no, no, no. The only thing that could deal with the depravity of man is God himself would have to come, take our place, and lay down his life for us. And he did it. This is the only way. Who has believed that not many, but it had happened. And then he says this, verse 2. And we can't even unpack all of this. This is just something to stir you. But he says... By the way, there's a, prog- there's a progression here. We're seeing him come into the world. We're going to see his suffering and then we'll see the reward of that. So this is him coming in, this, this messianic suffering servant. It says, for he grew up before him, meaning this servant grew up before God like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. Okay, stop right there. We have to understand, like this may not make a lot of sense unless you understand geography of Israel and Palestine. They have two seasons of rain, Okay. Spring and fall, spring season, this is heavy rain. Spring is known as the former rain, the fall is known as the latter rain. Okay, you may have heard prophecies that connect to this with the outpouring of the Spirit. That's where it comes from. But outside of those two seasons of heavy rain, the climate is extremely dry and arid. So what would begin to take place is that bodies of water like rivers and creeks, after days and weeks and months of the sun unrelentlessly pounding down on it, it would dry up. These are called wadis, when the water is is no longer there. And what happens is it forms this clay-like surface. You probably have seen it. In fact, when the heat gets so intense, that surface begins to break and split like a bunch of earthquakes. Have you ever seen that picture? So what Isaiah is seeing is he sees this vision of this wadi that's been dried up, completely beaten down and dry. But in the midst of that, he sees this small tender shoot. This tiny little green plant that's beginning to sprout out from one of the cracks. <laughs> he says, This is how we come into the world. Now, think about this. All of those conditions for that, that green little shoot is working against its existence and its survival. So it was with Jesus. He did not come into favorable conditions, everything worked against him. And it, it really speaks to the spiritual climate of humanity when he came in it was arid, it was dry. It was in a drought of spiritual vitality, yet this is where Jesus came in. The humility, the vulnerability of that little shoot. It's amazing what Jesus subjected himself to. And then he says this, right after that, he said, he had no form or majesty that we should look at him, and no beauty that we should desire him. That's amazing. It's connecting to what we probably just read meaning we'll, we'll share this in a moment. There is something very beautiful about that little green shoot coming out, but not in its external appearance. Let's just be honest. <laughs> no man would ever go and see that little thing coming out of the dry ground, cut it by its root and give it to its wife for his anniversary. There's nothing beautiful about it. There's no aroma, there's no blossom, there's no fragrance, there's nothing attractive about it. It says Jesus when he came, his external form, nothing beautiful about him. Nothing majestic about his form. How many times do we see pictures of Jesus, we have frames where he has the long flowing hair and he's as handsome as handsome can be. That is not what the scriptures say. If I was God and I came into this world, I would look like Brad Pitt from Troy. <laughs> seriously. <laughs> and here, but, but listen, <laughs> seriously, but think about the humility of his appearance. Because, because Saul, Saul was said to be tall in stature and set apart in how he looked. Saul looked like someone you'd want to follow. Do you know that there's a look that we want in our leaders? It's natural. It's by the flesh. We want. There's a study done on presidents outside of a few exceptions, uh, like Abraham Lincoln, who was really tall and gawky. John F. Kennedy, who was rather young. Uh, for the most part, they all fit a certain category. They're all 6'1 to 6'3. They all have graying hair, broad shoulders. Why? Because in the natural, that's someone we feel like, what we can follow. And, and they have, a, they have a, a presence about them when they come in, right? Jesus didn't have that at all. <laughs> there was nothing about his physical appearance that was beautiful. Nothing about. It. See, this is what I love though. This is why we need the spirit of God to be so moving in our gatherings because to see Jesus by the flesh, you would not want him. That's the idea. So this is why I get so encouraged in this house when people gather morning and night to behold the beauty of the Lord. What are we saying? We're not talking about his physical beauty. We're talking that the eyes of our heart have been opened up to see he is everything we've ever wanted. See, too often we have people, we're not fascinated, we're not stunned. Because we're still engaging with Jesus on a very carnal level. We haven't pressed past the exterior things of God to get into the interior life of Jesus. To see that he is the most beautiful man that ever lived. And so as a result we said, well he's pretty good. He's, pretty, he's got some pretty good teachings. But oh, when we begin to press in. Hebrews says... The veil was torn by his flesh. The imagery is that the Holy of Holies was within Jesus. But if you stop at the flesh, you stop at the veil. And you say, okay, it's pretty good. Jesus is inviting people to come through the outer form to see him, who who he really is. Where you say, oh my goodness, he is the fountain of living water. (laughs) He is the prince of peace. He is the bread of life. Oh, that we would see his beauty. We say, Holy Spirit, we need our eyes to be opened up to see that. Yes. Listen, it's, it gets intense from here on out, but I want you to know, nothing that we're about to read is wasted or unnecessary. Yes. Nothing about this is Jesus going over the top. Everything about what we're about to read is Jesus was acting as a substitution for us. And in everything that he's about to do, he takes on the penalty of sin, and he takes on the impact of sin. Meaning, through what we're about to read, forgiveness is available, and so is every effect of sin. Torment is broken, sickness is broken, as we see. Everything that falls from sin, broken relationships, all came on the person of Jesus so that we could, we could have victory and share in his spoils. So, verse three, let's read it. It says, He was despised and rejected by men. He was rejected. He was rejected by his own people. This is not a sign that his mission failed. Again, it's actually the very means of which he would save them. Through his rejection, he would step into what was actually meant to come upon them. And then he says this. He is a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. A man of sorrows. (laughs) This blows my mind. Jesus was known as a man of sorrows. Again, do not get the mindset that Jesus walked around really sad and depressed. He didn't. Because the oil of gladness was upon him. The joy of the Lord was his. In fact, it was for the the joy of the Lord set before him that he endured the shame of the cross. But what it's saying is that all of humanity's sorrows was put on this man. it would be judged in this man that we could have hope of no more pain. Do you know that in Revelation 21, how it all ends? It says that there's going to be this, the new Jerusalem, the people of God coming down out of heaven. Adorned like a beautiful bride. God's dwelling place. And it says, God will be their God and we will be his people. And then it says, and in that place, God will wipe away every tear from our eyes. Do you know there's nothing more intimate than the act of wiping a tear away? I've just thought about it with my kids when you get close and you wipe their tears away. Well, the only problem is that when we wipe a tear away, tears can come back again. But not when God wipes tears away, it'll be gone forever. And then it says, no more death, no more pain. No more mourning, and then it says, and no more sorrow. Sorrow will be a fully, will have been fully dealt with because the man of sorrows has come and taken it on. And so here's the hope is that we're not just waiting for a future moment. That future hope is already breaking forth into our now. We're beginning to see hope replacing depression. We're beginning to see life replacing death. Knowing that there's one day where in its fullness, what he paid for, we will begin to walk in. It says, and as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. I heard one uh, uh, pastor speak about this because it's a strange saying. Men hid their faces. What does that mean? And he said one day he was uh, doing some ministry work at a hospital. And he said that he was sitting with a bunch of nurses. And when the doctor walked in, everyone perked up. All the nurses' faces perked up. They all began to smile. They all looked at the doctor and made eye contact and said good morning, right? And then he said he noticed one of the nurses left the room and began to walk down the hallway. And as she walked down the hallway, uh, another person who works at the hospital was coming down her way. It was one of the men that collected all of the dirty laundry and towels. He was pushing the bin. And it says, as they were about to pass by, he too began to perk up as he saw her, wanting to greet her. But as her eyes began to lock, but his eyes began to lock with her eyes, she quickly averted her gaze and walked right by him. She hid her face. What does it mean? It means that that she treated him as less than. (laughs) To the one that she thought was worthy of her honor and respect, she looked and greeted. But one that she felt was less than, she hid the face. So when it says that man hid their faces, it means they felt like he was less than, a dirty thing. He was not worthy of our time. We did not esteem him. We didn't place value on his life. This is God who came and lived this way. Verse 4 says, the prophet says, surely, Meaning, this is a statement of absolute certainty. Surely, he has borne our griefs. That word is koli in the Hebrew. It means sickness, affirmity, disease. Jesus not only dealt with the penalty of sin, which is forgiveness, but he deals with the impact of sin. Torment and sickness. He took all of it on himself. All of it came on him. And it says, and he carried our sorrows. It's amazing, God could have had every right to intensify our griefs and sorrows, but instead he carries them for us. Notice it says our, our griefs, our sorrows. Nothing about what Jesus received was because of a deficiency in himself. Everything was for us. It says, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. We can't even unpack all of these words. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. And upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. Judgment came upon him. And with his wounds, the stripes, the scourging that took place before he even went to the cross, we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Can you imagine that? The iniquity of us all, every sin of every person and every consequence of that was laid on one man. Can you imagine the weight that came on this man? It's why it said it actually in chapter 52. Look look at this, chapter 52 verse 14. After that opening verse where it says he will prosper and be lifted up. It says, as many were astonished at you. His appearance was so marred beyond human resemblance. And his form beyond that of children of mankind. <laughs> the suffering he went through was so extreme that you couldn't even recognize he was a human anymore is what it was saying. Because the, the iniquity of us all was laid upon him. He was pierced. He was crushed. Do you remember Genesis 3.15, the first prophecy of how God would redeem the world? said that a seed would come forth from woman, Eve. And that this seed would overcome by what? Crushing the head of the serpent? Now we find out how it happened. Our thoughts would be he would come in in some powerful way of which we would describe as powerful. But he actually crushes the serpent by being crushed for us. He actually takes the bite for us. He actually steps into the fullness of the kingdom of darkness, sin, even touches the pains of hell for us so that we can be liberated. It says, here's the amazing thing. Who crushed him? Who pierced him? We say, oh, well, the Romans did. (laughs) Pontius Pilate is the one who sent him. The Romans pierced him. It was the Jews that handed him over. No, 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 that's not what it's saying. It's saying it was Yahweh, the father who crushed him, the father who pierced him. Sure, there was man who was working through it, revealing our own depravity. But at the end of the day, God was not caught off guard by this. Peter actually stood up in Acts 2 after the pouring out of the spirit and says, men, men of Israel, he says, you crucified Jesus. But know this, this was according to the definite plan of God. The foreknowledge of God. See, this moment was set up before the foundations of this earth. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit knew this moment would come. And as the Father places all of this on Jesus, all of the sin of humanity, he sees this heap of iniquity on the person of Jesus, and that's why he bruises it. He crushes it. He pierces it so that we could be liberated and set free. Verse 7 He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. Never once did he protest before the Father. Never once did he call down the legions of angels, even though he could have. Even though they mocked him on the cross and said, if you are the Son of God, come down and save yourself and us. And what they did not realize is that he remained because he was saving them. When Pontius Pilate said, open your mouth and give an answer, he did not. When the high priest said, open up and give us an answer, he did not. He was led like a lamp to the slaughter, silent. Silent. And then verse 8 says, by oppression and judgment, he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off at a land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people. It's the pinnacle of his suffering. It says, who could consider that he was cut off? He died. That Jesus actually died for us. And then verse 9 says, and they made his grave with the wicked. Meaning when Jesus was crucified, the son of glory was actually put between two criminals. And he died a criminal's death. (laughs) And then it said, and with a rich man in his death, Although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. What does that mean? That he was buried as a rich, as a, according to a rich man's death. One of the interesting things about Jesus' life is that there is this incredible movement from humiliation to exaltation. Philippians 2 talks about it. He got so low, taking on the form of a servant, crucified. But now he's given the name that is above every name. That he would be called Lord, right? But the question is, when does his humiliation end and when does his exaltation begin? And my natural thought would be, well, the exaltation begins when he's resurrected. But that's not what it's saying here. He died as a criminal. But under Roman law, he should have been thrown into a place called Gehenna, which is where they burn the bodies of criminals. It actually became an imagery of hell. But that's not what happened. Joseph of Arimathea, a very wealthy man, came and was able to convince the Romans to take him down off the cross and give him an honorable death. He actually was buried as a king. He died as a criminal but he was buried as a king. In his burial, the reversal begins to take place. The burial is very significant. In, in Genesis, the patriarchs, they would move their bones all over just to be buried in certain places. Jesus dies as a criminal in our place, but his burial he receives as a king of which he was. And then here comes verse 10. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. Some translations say it was the pleasure of Yahweh to crush him. You say, hold on. (laughs) This sounds like some diabolical pleasure here. The pleasure that the father found in what was happening was not pleasure over the son's actual suffering. The pleasure that he found was in what the suffering was producing. And just so you're not misunderstanding this, if you think Jesus was then put in a place where he didn't want to be, no, no, no. He willfully said yes. He says no one takes the shepherd's life. I lay it down. This is amazing. We're reading about sorrow, grief, all these things. But you have to understand in the midst of this, within the Godhead, there's a measure of pleasure and joy that's happening. Because this is a moment that they've been waiting for for all of eternity. There's joy in their hearts knowing that it's going to lead to ultimately the reward of this suffering, which we'll find out is us. And so it was the will of the Lord, the pleasure of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see... His offspring, he shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Here's where we begin to see the fruit come forth. Because he would be crushed, it says many offspring will come after this now. It's adopted sons and daughters. It's me and you. And then verse 11 is the pinnacle, the pinnacle of the triumph, I think. Listen to these words it says, out of the anguish of his, meaning Christ's soul, He shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Here's what it says. It says, out of the anguish of his soul, out of the travail, when he sees all that he's going to go through, which we just barely even touched on, it says that he sees the reward of that suffering, and he says it is worth it. Consider how much he went through. If we can try to process what does that tell you about the value that he places on what he's receiving? Tremendous value. And what is that reward? It's us. We are the reward of this suffering. And when he looks at all that he will bear and he sees what he's going to receive, it is worth it. Everything gets put on. Listen, a lot of times when I think of Jesus' suffering, I think of physical suffering. But the Lord reminded me of this, because I want you to know, like, he purchased everything. When he went into the garden of Gethsemane on the night that he'd be betrayed, it says that his soul was deeply vexed. He was deeply distressed over what was about to come. In fact, he actually began to sweat uh, uh, blood. It's an actual medical term where his capillaries were breaking. None of us have ever experienced a stress like that, right? Do you know that, 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 that what he felt inside, that anguish, that travail, he had yet to be beaten with any club. He had yet to have the crown of thorns pressed into his head. He had yet to have his beard pulled out. He had yet to have the nails put in his hand and pierced in his side. Which means the anguish of his soul that he felt there was not physical. It was something emotional. There was mental pain that he was going through. There was spiritual pain that he was going through. Beloved, he has taken on everything. This is why we can have minds renewed because of the atonement of Jesus. This is why when we've been hurt and betrayed by people and there's emotional bondage and brokenness, we can have healing in Jesus. All of pain was put on him. And when he saw all of that that he would walk through, he says, I see you. Hebrews said, for the joy of the Lord, he endured the shame of the cross. He saw what it was doing. That word, verse 11, says, out of the anguish of his soul, the word also could be travail. In the Hebrew, it's almost every time used for a woman going through the pains of childbirth. How many of you have ever been in the living room? <laughs> okay, it looks like a war zone. <laughs> I'm just going to be honest. After the first time, I couldn't believe my wife did it two more times and then we're going to do it again. Um, <laughs> but it, it's intense. <laughs> and, and just think about this. What goes through that process of bringing forth new life? There is, it's, man, there's, there's just a lot of stuff. There's stress <laughs> that's going on. We'll just leave it at that. And it, it is such a, it's just such a traumatic thing. Here I am, like I didn't even go through anything. <laughs> but, but it is, but I'm watching her, I'm like, this is crazy. But here's what happens. All of that pain, all of that trauma, all of that stress, emotional, mental, physical. And then you hear the cries of that new life coming forth. The mother holds that baby and she's already saying, I want another one. <laughs> what has happened is that when she saw what it was producing, she said it was worth it. When Jesus sees what it is producing and the new life that's coming forth, he says, it is worth it. I will go through that in order to bring many. And also, Jesus does it for us. But, but here's what, the Father saves us because he loves us, but the Father loves Jesus. And, and the Father knows that every time someone else comes to the Lord or, or when Jesus, whatever Jesus paid for, every time we step in faith to see it happen again, it satisfies the heart of Jesus again. Right. So the father loves to keep doing what the Jesus paid for because he loves to see the son's heart satisfied. And the son loves to do what the father has to do because he loves to satisfy the father. It brings him joy to do his, his will. And so not only is there many offspring, but it says we'll be declared righteous. And then finally in verse 12... It says, therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong. Ah, it gets even better. This is military language. When a conquering king or army would win, they would take the spoils and divide it out. And what it's saying is that we who now have been declared righteous, born again as new children, get to share in the triumph of Christ's victory. All that he has received, we get to be seated and raised with him in the heavenly places, reigning as kings on earth with him for all of eternity. And it says, because he has poured out his soul to death, he was numbered with the transgressors, yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. Now we stop at chapter 53, but the reality is that you shouldn't. (laughs) Just look at the next verse in 54. Look what it says. It says, "In light of all this, here's where the the blessings flow." It says, "Sing, O barren one, who did not bear. Break forth into singing and cry aloud, you who have not been in labor. For the children of the desolate will be more than the children who is married," says the Lord. All that praise arise because the suffering servant of the Lord has come. And now we can have new covenant. We can have new new creation. Now even the furthest outcasts of society can be brought in and be called children of God. Man, Mark, can you just can you play something real quick? Um, I, wanna, I wasn't sure I was going to share this. Uh, but right before we take communion, I just want you to see this. How the, the New Testament church understood what we just shared. Really quick, come to Acts. Acts chapter 3. And we'll close right here. Because Acts chapter 3, Acts so much... Reveals chapter 54, 55, 56. <laughs> so because of Isaiah 53, we can step into 54 and the new creation. And Acts chapter 3, it's a story that we speak often about. Peter and John, right, they heal a layman outside the temple, right. We shared this before. They don't have any financial resources. But they have faith in the name of Christ. This man gets healed who was lame for 40 years. All of a sudden, the crowds begin to circle around Peter and John. And this lame man, because they can't believe it. 40 years, this man couldn't walk. And they begin to press them because they want to know, how in the world did this happen? How could this happen? These are signs of the new era. These are signs of the messianic age. How could this take place? And look at verse 12 of chapter 3. And it says, and when Peter saw it, meaning the crowds coming around... He addressed the people. And he said, men of Israel, why do you wonder at this? Or why do you stare at us as though by our own power or piety we have made him walk? He's saying, why are you, first of all, why are you stunned by this and why do you look to us? He said, I will tell you why this happened. Verse 13, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. The God of our fathers, ready? What does it say? Glorified his servant, Jesus, whom you delivered over and denied in the presence of Pilate, who you crucified. See, when we read through that, my first thought is he's speaking about Jesus as a person who does a lot of nice things. He's a servant. That's not what Peter's saying. Peter is using a title that the Jews would have been aware of. He's saying the Father has glorified the servant of the Lord. He's saying the servant of the Lord has come and you have crucified him. Meaning, Peter is saying, Isaiah has come to pass. Isaiah 53 is here. The servant of the Lord has come and he's given up his life. And the reason why this man could walk and be made whole is because the Messiah has come. And the kingdom of God has come. And because he took it all on himself, we can now step into these things. Do you know just a little bit later on, Acts chapter 8. Acts chapter 8 is a story about Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch. You ever read it? It's incredible. Just hear this. Philip is led by the spirit to go minister to this eunuch who he finds riding in a carriage. And when he comes close to the carriage, he hears uh, hears the eunuch reading scriptures from Isaiah. Do you know what he's reading? Isaiah 53, verses 7 and 8. He says, do you understand what you're reading? He says, how can I unless someone explains it. The eunuch brings him into it. And the eunuch asks him, he says, who is this about? Is this about the prophet Isaiah 53? Is it the one who wrote it or is it about someone else? And it says, beginning in that scripture and going through the scriptures that follow, he began to say that it's all about Jesus. Now check this out. (laughs) You remember how I said chapter 56 is about the foreigners coming in? Do you know what one of the major emphases are in that? It says, even eunuchs will be able to come before the presence of God. And they they will have more honor than sons and daughters. And they will be able to minister to God forever. Which means when... Philip came in that, that, uh, that uh, carriage. He says, you're reading 53. Jesus fulfilled that. He says, now let me show you what the re- result of that is. Even you as a eunuch can come in before the presence of God. The doors have been opened. So I'm going to ask if the ushers would please pass out the elements for communion. We're going to close by, by partaking in the body and the blood of Jesus And we practice open communion here, which means we don't have any set classes. All that we ask is that Jesus is Lord and Savior in your life. And if he's not, there's salvation in these wounds. doesn't need to look like any way. You just take these and apply and say, Lord, I believe upon what you have done. I believe upon that sacrifice, Lord. Just when you get it, hold on to it. You can open it up if you like, but we're going to partake together. You know, we certainly don't believe that, that the bread and this, this juice is the actual, right? We, we don't believe it's the actual body and blood. But what I will say is oftentimes we look at this as purely symbolic, and it's not that either. Right? When we lay hands on someone and someone experiences breakthrough, uh, that's the power of Jesus. Do we believe that our hands literally became the hands of Jesus? No. But we do believe that there was something about us acting in faith that Jesus worked through that. And so this bread and this cup that we're about to partake, it's not just symbolic. These are instruments that are used. You can weaponize this, that by faith when you take this, this, this body, there's still healing in this body. Jesus is alive. When we partake of the juice, the blood, the blood is still speaking. It's still breaking shame. It's still, it's still delivering people from torment and from things in their mind. And so I just, I want our hearts to be prepared that I don't know what it looks like, but everything was put on Jesus. So whatever's going on in your life, like there's faith for God to touch you in that area this morning. So take out the bread, if you will. Does everyone have it? I want us to partake together. So, Lord, oh Jesus, we thank you. We thank you. We thank you, Lord. We thank you that you are the suffering servant. We thank you that you came. We thank you that you bore our griefs. You bore our sorrows. You bore our punishment. We thank you for your passion, Lord. We thank you for your body that was torn open, Lord. We thank you that your body made a way to come in, God. We thank you that we're not just justified sinners, but we're born again children of God who can cry out, Abba. That we can cry out, Abba, I just pray right now, Holy Spirit, I just pray, fill people this morning. Fill people. God, I pray for those that have been still in the outer courts. Oh, Spirit, would you lead them into the inner place of Jesus, that they would behold the beauty of who he is. I pray right now for those that are in physical pain I pray, God, that when they touch this body, when it comes in, that they would receive healing by you, Jesus. I pray for those that have mental pain. I pray for those with emotional pain, relational pain. I pray the joy of the Lord would hit them as they receive your wounds fresh to this morning. Lord, we declare that you truly did prosper in what you came to do. And right now, we lift you high... And we exalt you. So let's partake of the bread together. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. And let's take the juice together. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Yeah. Oh, Jesus, we thank you that you were poured out. You were poured out. We thank you that we can partake in the triumph of your victory. Lord, that we get to partake and receive the spoils of your victory because you poured out your soul even unto death. We thank you, Jesus, that you drank the cup. We thank you, Lord, that you didn't leave one sip for us, but you drank it fully. And we thank you that in your blood there's forgiveness we thank you that in your blood there is sanctification. We thank you that in your blood there's new life. There's new life. Lord, we just pray over mindsets of just feeling like we can't measure up. God, I thank you that it's by your blood. It's by your blood that we can come before you. And I just I just plead the blood over minds this morning that are struggling with living as sons and daughters. Minds that have been tormented I pray they'd be renewed this morning and may you live them into a lifestyle of abiding in your truth from this place. Lord, we apply your blood like the Israelites in the Passover. We take the blood in the basin and we put it over the doorpost of our lives right now. Lord, we apply it because we speak out all that it does. We believe this blood is alive and it speaks, Lord. So by faith, we apply it to our hearts. God, I pray that every other voice would come under this voice of the blood. We pray it in Jesus' name, amen. Let's partake. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. We'll have a prayer team come up here, if anyone would like prayer. uh, For anything specific that the Lord highlights something. Um, But yeah, we bless you guys. We'll see you guys this week. Prayer room, Alpha any other things going on but we love you going confidence and joy and <laughs> you are made new by his work